I know there's a, a few people from our congregation who have, um, because of health issues and things, have self-kind of quarantined, and so I just want to say hello to them if they're going to be listening to the podcast after service in a few hours. We, we miss you and love you. Um, yeah. Well, a few years ago, my, my grandmother on my mom's side was dying from cancer and the complications around that. And even though she lived in Kentucky with my grandfather, um, we had a special relationship that I, I just can't quite explain. I mean, we were never physically close because I grew up in Washington and she lived in Kentucky. But she's one of those people in my life that we just had a connection. Um, and we saw each other probably once a year on average growing up. Um, special person in my life. And my mom went and stayed with her her last month of her struggle with cancer. And once hospice was called in, Corey and I talked about it, and we decided that I should go um, and, and go see her. Uh, when I arrived and walked into the house, my grandfather said, she's waiting for you. Uh, she's holding out, she said, to see you. Um, and I spent the next few days at her bedside as she was in and out of consciousness we prayed together and had little moments and I would give her swabs of water on her mouth so she could suck it to moisten her lips and her throat. But speaking was difficult for her, and I remember a few of her words to me over those last days, and as I was preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, I'm not really going to share those words with you. Um, it's a funny thing, preaching, and I just feel like I want to hold those words between she and I, something sacred. Um, rather than just a sermon illustration. But I will say this about those words. Those labored, raspy words that she struggled to get out are very dear to me. They're the last words I would ever hear my grandmother say, in her mortal body at least. And I, I want to say this, that the words themselves were not more significant than other words that she had said. And they weren't even encapsulating all that her life lived. Her life was much bigger and grander and more beautiful than those last words. Her last words didn't define her or change the way I think about her, but they did two things for me. First, they encapsulated so much of who she is, so much of who she was. They, they didn't say it all. They weren't comprehensive, but they kind of were nuggets that said, yes, that's really you, because your whole life represented those things. And, and number two, it seems to me that because they were the last words, rare words, they seem, to me at least, to kind of count as double, uh, a little weightier than other words she may have said. We find ourselves today in the second Sunday of Lent. Our sermon series during Lent is rooted in the seven last words or phrases that Jesus spoke as he died on the cross. Jesus' whole life, his ministry and his teachings fill the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is absolutely no one in the world like Jesus. There's no one that did the things he did or taught like he taught or called human beings to both admit their poverty of spirit while living into our vocation as image bearers of the living God. Nobody talked like that, taught like that, lived like that. We wouldn't need Jesus' last words on the cross to tell us any of that stuff. And yet, as he struggled for breath against the suffocating mechanism that is crucifixion, Jesus' last words from the cross 
have come to have a special place in the devotional life of Christians throughout the centuries. When someone you love is dying, you pay special attention to their words. And so we are. On Ash Wednesday, we explored the first words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know. They don't understand what they're doing. We came to see that in this phrase, Jesus intercedes on behalf of his executioners, the Romans, and on behalf of his accusers, the Jewish religious leaders, and on behalf of each of us, he says, Father, forgive them. What a powerful image and what good news. Not only is there forgiveness available for the world powers, but also for you and for me. And last week, Pastor Jeff from First Baptist Church downtown preached on Jesus' second word from the cross. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's speaking to a newly repentant man who hung on the cross next to him. Jesus declared that this micro mustard seed size faith uh, was enough to warrant him entrance into paradise with God as soon as he passed from life into death. What a comfort it is to be reminded um, that there's more than we experience in this moment, in this now. What joy it is to know that between our death and our resurrection, we will be with Jesus in some magnificent way and with those that we love who have gone on before us. And this evening, we're going to hear Jesus' uh, his third word or phrase from the cross as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. If you'll stand with me, I'll read that for us, and then we'll dig in. And I'm just going to reach back a little bit further and read from verse 23. So it's John 19, 23 through 27. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Lord, we're grateful for the presence of faithful witnesses who stood with you in this moment of your deepest grief and alienation and suffering, who stood watch with you and have passed on these details to us. Help us, Lord, not to do a Bible study in this moment, but increase our devotion toward you. Help us to empathize with you, to see and experience and feel what that might have been like. And to feel the weight and the good news of the words you spoke from the cross as if they were spoken to us. Amen. You may be seated.
The scene opens with a contrast between three groups of people. You have the four soldiers at the foot of the cross. You have four women at the foot of the cross. And you have Jesus' male disciples, except for John, out of the frame, in dispersion, hiding and defeated. You have the four soldiers with Jesus, callously gambling to decide who gets his clothing when he dies. You have four women faithfully tending Jesus, giving him the gift of their presence in his most desperate need. And you have the male disciples of Jesus, except John, conspicuously missing from the story at all. You have four nameless soldiers whose job it is to kill and humiliate and dehumanize Jesus. And you have four women, Jesus' mother, her sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, whose only thought was to mourn and to stand vigil with Jesus in his suffering. And you have the disciples, the same ones who failed to stand vigil with Jesus when he was sweating tears of blood because of his anxiety in the garden of Gethsemane. Those disciples, except for John, are still missing in Jesus' second great hour of need. Can we just pause and give thanks for faithful women? Women's month, you know. (laughs) Um, Had Mary not been obedient to the angel and carried Jesus to full term, what would the world be like now? Had these women not been present at the cross and then at the tomb and then sharing the news of the resurrection with the male disciples, how much of this story would we even know? What details would be lost? Luke's gospel is where we get most of our information about Mary and the angel's visit to her, uh, about her cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, and about John the Baptist. And we know that Luke, the historian, the physician who wrote the gospel, likely interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his writings. We have John, the disciple whom Jesus loved a term of great respect and endearment in the ancient world. John ends up recording this event and these words that Jesus spoke in his last hours through his wispy, labored breaths. The text says that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, he said, woman, behold your son. And then he turned to John and said, behold your mother. What a touching moment. What a powerful scene. Jesus, the good son, the eldest son of the family, likely providing for his mother as as one of his last acts, makes sure that she's cared for. Historians believe almost unanimously that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, the adopted father of Jesus, is, is dead at this point. And so Mary is under the care of Jesus. And that would make Mary vulnerable as she's watching the breath leave her son and caretaker. In those days and in that culture, there were very few ways a woman could make a living for herself, few uh, options still, fewer options still where she could make a living and maintain her honor. So Jesus does something practical here, and we shouldn't overlook that fact. But I want to suggest that there's a lot more going on in this story than Jesus merely caring for his mother. And I, and I, I want to explain the word merely because I want to emphasize that caring 
caring for one's mother or father or elder is not trivial. In fact, I mean, Jesus is like obeying the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments in this moment. So that's not trivial. I use the term merely to indicate that what Jesus has done through his third word on the cross is more than just providing for the earthly needs of his mother. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think Jesus, through his third word on the cross, is creating an entirely new family. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But let me explain what leads me to believe that Jesus is doing more than merely caring for his mother, but creating a whole new family. Because it would be super easy for us at this moment to sentimentalize this scene. I mean, you've probably read devotionals like this. Jesus, Mary's firstborn son, her special child conceived by the Holy Spirit, is brutally dying. And one of his last words is to care for her. Countless poems, devotionals, reflections, and sermons have read into this moment. And they speak of Mary as the one who gave Jesus his mannerisms and his cheekbones and his eyes and his skin color. But she was the one who changed his diapers and the one who comforted him when he skinned his knees as a child. And I suspect that every one of those things is true. But consider the context of this story. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' mother is only mentioned two times. Here, and at the story of the wedding in Cana, where they run out of wine, you know that one? And in the Gospel of John, where Jesus' mother is mentioned two times, we never learn her name. The word Mary is never spoken in the Gospel of John. So usually when we read this story in the Gospel of John, we put all of the stuff we know about Mary from other places and we read it into the story in the Gospel of John, right? We know about Mary because we've referenced Luke's Gospel, and then we take a dash of Matthew and a pinch of Mark and we mix it all up and we say, we know all about Jesus' mother. John doesn't say her name, but we know her name is Mary and she did all these things and the angels and all this stuff, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Mary is not unimportant to John. We could never get that from this text. I mean, after all, John, the disciple, who also wrote this gospel, took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his home as his own. This man literally loves Mary. But I want to say that Mary is important to John as more of a symbolic figure. She's more than a sentimental figure. She's a symbolic figure. Listen to this quote by Fleming Rutledge. In both her appearances in John, here and at the marriage in Cana, Jesus calls her woman. In English, that might sound very rude, but in Jesus' culture, it was perfectly correct for a man to address a woman as woman. It is not, however, the way a man would address his mother. It's interesting. Rutledge continues, What is actually happening in this word from the cross is much more significant on this very day than we might have ever realized. The saying is not about being nice to your mom. It's about the new community that comes into being through the power of Jesus. 
This new community Jesus is creating transcends biological family or adopted family. After all, Jesus has other siblings. We know his younger brother James, not to be, not to be confused with the disciple James of the 12. I know they all have the same names. And how many Marys are at the cross anyways? It's so crazy. But so James, the brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus, ends up becoming the leader of the Jerusalem church after Pentecost and all these things happen. But in this moment... James isn't a believer in Jesus, right? In fact, James is one of the ones that tried to like, take Jesus into custody and to say, you're, you're going crazy, brother. We're coming to take you home. At this moment of crucifixion, John and Mary are at the foot of the cross, not James. James isn't there. James isn't seeing Jesus for who he really is yet. For Jesus, the most important connection between people isn't flesh and blood family, but faith family. John, his beloved and trusted disciple, would become his brother in that moment and look after his mother. Jesus has seven last words from the cross, and none of them are, follow me when you get the time. He never said, follow me if it's okay with your family. He never said, what matters is your view on politics or how to discern the mode of baptism, or what translation of the Bible you use, or what style of music you play, or whether or not you believe in seven literal days of creation, or a process superintended by the living God. He never says any of those things from the cross as being the litmus test or the important things before he dies. So far, we've heard Jesus say three things from the cross. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise, even if you have the smallest mustard seed style faith. And three, woman, behold your son. Brother, John, behold your mother. Behold in me is a new family, a new community. You know, before the disciples were called the way, like in the book of Acts, and before they were described by the people of Antioch as Christians, little Christs, and before they self-designated the, the, themselves as the ecclesia or the church, the gathered and sent out ones, they were simply the family at the foot of the cross, a new community, a new way of being together. Now, whether or not you have a strong nuclear family or whether or not you come from a strong nuclear family, this is good news. Because if you're part of a great family, you don't lose out. In following Jesus, you just gain more. It's kind of like when two great people get married, right? And they both come from great families. And, you know, the father of the bride, the parents of the bride, you know, you're not losing the bride, you're gaining a son. I hope that's true someday. Um, and it works both ways, right? And so, like, it's, it's, a, it's a net gain. It's not a loss, right? It's like this, this melding of things, and it's better than it was before, and there's synergy and all these fun words for it. All right? So that's, that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is that nobody comes from a perfect family, and some come from homes that are very broken. Some of us carry some really big scars on the inside that create in us suspicion and cause us to doubt whether or not love is really possible at all, at least a love without strings attached. And to those of us, Jesus says, Come, behold your mother. Behold your son, behold your siblings, behold your parents of the faith, the family, 
in Jesus' name. You know, one of the most attractive elements of following Jesus in the book of Acts was the way that the family of Jesus cared for each other. They defied the logic of tribalism and blind loyalty to a family patriarch at the expense of the welfare of other people. They pushed back against a system in which the emperor took the spoils of hard work. And instead, what they did is that they loved one another. They worked through their differences of culture and religious backgrounds and language. Imagine, at least we all kind of speak English how hard it would be in a community where you're coming from completely different worldviews and trying to make all this work. And we see that happening under the banner of Christ. I remember moving to California with Corey. We were married just less than a year. Um, So our first, we got married in September 97, and we had our first Thanksgiving. We lived in Washington. We were at parents' houses, you know, so we did that thing. Then we moved to California. I was transferred when I was in the Coast Guard, and we got involved with this church down there, and all of a sudden, our second Thanksgiving ever, uh, away from home, newly wet, it was just a recipe for loneliness, really, and these friends from church invited us over, and they invited Three, three couples all together, so there's eight of us, and all three couples that they invited over were people like us who had come to this church and had family across the country, and we were just going to be alone on Thanksgiving. And I remember feeling a little bit uptight about it, like, how is this going to go down? And we had the most joyous celebration of Friendsgiving ever. Food was fantastic, too. Uh, We played games. We laughed. We shared stories. We shared life together. And I I left, and I felt like we had just come home in a way, that the church had provided a piece of family for me that I I hadn't even experienced um, in my own biological family. How does one join this family? I'm going to mention two ways. I know the youth group kids are trying to take notes, so I got two. The first is through the grace of Jesus. Like you don't get into the family of God by being born with the right last name or the wrong last name. That's not the way you get into the family of Jesus. And it's not by the color of our skin or a certain number or figure in our bank account. It's a grace gift being invited into the family of Jesus. You can't get into the family of Jesus because of your education, and you can't be kept out of the family of Jesus because of your lack of education. The family of Jesus is available to all because of the grace of Jesus. It's not because of gender or sex or vocation or language or culture or nationality. It's the grace of Jesus. And it's not a one-size-fits-all family. We don't all fit perfectly together like a puzzle, right? Families are messy mixes of personalities and beliefs and temperaments and interests. Families don't agree on everything. True? Yeah. People in families love each other, but they might have different political views. (gasps) People in families stay together, but might have opposing opinions on how to be family together. Right? Aren't we always disappointing someone in the, in the family, right? Um, family members um, might not be interested in the same things or the same issues, but they encourage each other's strengths and wish the best for each other, at least in a healthy family, right? So we may not even all be into the same things all the time. Our different passions, even in ministry, are going to be different. 
But we've got to be careful not to look down on each other, but to breathe breath of life and encourage each other. I'm reminded of before uh, Stella was a, uh, playing Rangers soccer. She was on a, the North Side rec club team, and it was, uh, I think, second grade. And um, there was this sweet girl on her team named Brianna. Um, and she's this beautiful little redhead girl with cute freckles. And Brianna loved to play goalie. And Brianna was a horrible goalie. Um, afraid of the ball, for one. Uh, and then when, the, when, the, when the, the ball would be on the other half, you know, if you looked over at Brianna in the goal, she'd, she'd start going like, like this. And then, as the best way, so if the ball's in the other half for too long, Brianna would... She'd be doing that. The ball would just go right through. Like, Brianna, <laughs> sweetie. Well, some of the kids on the team got a little bit frustrated with that. It's like, you know, it's yeah, one job. <laughs> She's got one job. What ended up happening is Brianna decided, hey, the soccer thing's not for me. But now she dances for one of the local dance schools, and she's a fan. She's thriving. And you know, if we were to see the, the, the kids in Whatcom County as a family, like, like as a metaphor, right? They don't all have to play soccer in order to be part of that family. But we want to encourage them to do the things that they're good at and that they love and are passionate about. And I'm glad Brianna's dancing, and I'm glad Stella's playing soccer. In the family of Jesus, we siblings are going to be passionate about certain issues and activities, and we may not be passionate about the same things all the time. But by the grace of Jesus, there's a place for us in the family, and there's a place for you to belong. So you get into the family through grace, the grace of Jesus, and you get into the family through faith in Jesus. That is, we are part of Jesus's family when we trust that the things he says to do, like in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, or in his teachings, when, when we trust that the things Jesus says to do are worth doing, when we trust that the things that Jesus says are important, are important to us, when we trust that the things Jesus says are holy, are holy to us, and when we trust that the things that Jesus says are evil, become increasingly distasteful and evil to us. Trusting and obedience in Jesus matters. Matters. Faith isn't believing the right things as if we could think our way into the family. And I just want to encourage you to, to just think for a moment. That would discriminate against every single young person who can't cognitively come up with a formula for the Trinity? I mean, I, I struggle with that. So do you, be honest. Uh, but I mean, every young person, every person with, um, uh, w- with mental disabilities, any person who's, who's had head trauma, I mean, there's so many people that that would just leave out, right? It cannot just be a cognitive thing to, to be part of the family of Jesus. There has to be what the Bible says, grace and faith. In the third chapter of Mark, Bella, thank you for reading that earlier. Fantastic job. Jesus is teaching to a capacity crowd in a little home setting. People are outside trying to listen through the windows. Uh, He's got all these people listening, and Jesus' mom and brothers come, and they want to take custody of Jesus because they think he's overworking and he's nuts and, like, he's embarrassing us. He's saying all these things. We want to take him home. 
so we can care for him, meaning lock him down, right? And, uh, and Jesus is told by someone, hey, your mom's looking for you. And Jesus answered and said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked around to those who were sitting there at his feet, like listening to his teachings, interested in what he was saying, trying to pick up every word and apply it. He says, behold, my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my mother and my sister. It's faith that makes us part of the family of Jesus. Think back to John chapter 2, if you remember that story. If not, I'll give it in a nutshell. Jesus is going to a wedding, presumably of a family friend, because it's in a small town called Cana, next to his hometown, and his mom is there. So he's probably, you know, it's a family affair, and he's at this wedding. The bride and groom, by the way, never named by name, but they're significant in the story, run out of wine way too early. A lot of times these weddings would last four, five, six days long. To run out of wine would bring family shame, and you don't want a new couple to start off that way. So Mary, being a good Jewish mom, goes over to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. Now when your matriarchal, anyone have a, come from any matriarchal? My dad's adopted side, so um, the Eltriches, his mom was Croatian, uh, his adoptive mom's Croatian. When she said something like, they're out of wine, what that really means is, go get some more damn wine. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, there's a subtlety to it. It's a command. She's invoking in a nice way, but you really know what the subtext is. Get this done. Take care of this situation. So Mary goes to Jesus, or, or Jesus' mother, because John doesn't say Mary. But anyway, we know who it is. Uh, hey, they're out of wine, right? It's kind of like the overbearing mother. Are you going to eat that? Like, I guess not now, Uh, (laughs) right? So, so, so she's saying you're out of wine. This is this is her invoking her position as a mother over her young son, young twenty-something son, probably or thirty-something son, um, unattached son, by the way. And so she's got some force there culturally over him. And this moment, in that scene in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, Jesus' mother is making a demand on him. She believes, yes, he has something special. Yes, he can help. It'd be like being Superman's mom. Hey, can you just fly over to the store real quick and get some more? You know what I'm saying? Um, But she's approaching him. She's approaching Jesus as a mother first and as a disciple second. She has it backwards, but she doesn't realize it yet. Now, fast forward to the cross. There's his mom again, second time in the Gospel of John, but a lot has happened. His mother's not making any demands. She's not made herself the main character in the narrative. Instead, her humble presence and devotion to Jesus shows her faith in action She has learned that even she, the mother of God, must first be his disciple and then be his relative, even as his mother. And this is the posture of faith that makes us part of the family of Jesus. We have no claim on him. He is the master. He makes the rules, not us. We don't pick and choose 
feel like obeying and not obeying, which teachings we like and which ones we don't. Faith requires us to submit our own autonomy for the sake of so much more. I want to just leave with two, two thoughts, two situations. If you're here this evening wondering where you belong, how you fit, where to find your people, Jesus says, behold, through faith in me and through my grace, come and find your place in my family. Lay down your striving. Lay down your pretending, your mask. Take it off. There's a place for you to live out your belonging. And then for those of us who have been part of the family for some time, won't you join me in my journey in considering how we might continue to submit our personal freedoms and rights for the sake of obedience to Jesus and serving one another? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you again for these words that were handed down to us from your servant John and through the witness of faithful women. Thank you that we could have already known your community, your church, your family was important to you, but how the weight of these last words bring that home. I pray, Lord, that um, even for those who have been walking with you a long time but don't feel connected that you would work in two directions, Lord, that you would work in, in our hearts as individuals to trust, to lay down our suspicions, to lay down our fears, to trust, Lord, that your imperfect church is a place where we can belong. And I pray, Lord, that you would also work in the other direction, that you would help us where we're all, at all possible to be welcomers, to be open, to be exceptionally caring, exceptionally gracious to others, Lord, knowing that they probably struggle with the same fears and anxieties that we do. And I pray by your grace, Lord, that you would show each one just the way they need it, pockets of openness, places to fit, knowing that this is your great desire to see your people come together as your family. Lord, forgive us for ever preventing that, for standing in the way of others, experiencing the goodness and graciousness of your family. And help us, Lord, to experience it more and more fully. Amen.